0: So this is our Dong reading group uh, on individuation in light of notions of form and information. We're on part two, chapter one, section one, subsection two. So we're starting from page 215 of the translation. So last week, we, um, we saw more of this. Yeah, most, most of this. Uh, sorry, it's chapter two we're on. Um, yeah, most of this chapter has been about these different types of colony organisms corals and and hydras and so on, that they have this relative degree of individuation so that they they live in these colony forms that have a shared circulatory system or, or some sort of shared set of uh functions and uh and so he's been looking at the the way that the information integration corresponds to individuation uh so there's like in in certain organisms that have a nervous system there's a transmission of information uh, across the whole uh body of the organism whereas other organisms that either don't have a nervous system or have a less differentiated nervous system will have certain vital functions that are localized. So, like in the example of, I think it was an anemone or or something like that, the prey catching behavior is localized. So, um, when one of the tentacles is touched, it will um, it will try to grasp whatever is touching it and and pull it into the mouth. But that's a completely localized phenomenon because all, all the other tentacles are independent. Uh, they they just react to um, the local sensation of touch. But then. The uh, the response to uh, ingesting uh, some sort of toxin is uh, distributed across the whole colony because the the whole colony will um, eject whatever they've uh, swallowed, and so the the one one set of responses is localized and specific to one individual tentacle, and then the other responses are are general to the whole colony. So when we talk about individuation of living organisms, we have to Specify uh, that individuation relative to specific vital functions, and, and those degrees of individuation can differ from one set of functions to another. So that, that's basically what we've seen in this chapter so far, and uh, we're going to continue uh, looking at the relationship between uh, information structure and, and integration, and the notion of uh, relative individuality uh, in in the vital uh, sphere or in the sphere of living. Organisms. Okay, so I'll start reading the first page or so, and then we can discuss from there. subsection two, regimes of information and reports between individuals. Is individualization linked to specialization? This question can be posed by considering polymorphic colonies. Polymorphism is often a consequence of budding, and if it is considered that individuality depends on conditions of reproduction, it indeed seems that polymorphism must be considered as linked to individuality. In fact, it turns out that the various buds in a colony of C. lenterates do not all develop in the same way. The colony is then composed of individuals that are different from one another due to their form and their mode of functioning. In some hydrants, like Hydroctinia and Clava, the hydrorhiza, I'm not sure about that, uh, hydrorhiza spreads out on a support, a shell inhabited by a hermit crab, in a very tight network and in superposed strata. The hydrants are born directly from this inclined stolon and stand vertically. In the clava, a short hydrocolus serves as a peduncle pedun- for the hydrants. One part of the hydrants has a mouth and tentacles; these are the gastrozoids, or nourishing individuals. The other parts, without a mouth, are sterile and very contractile and contort into a spiral, spirozooids or dactylozooids, and then relax and strike the surrounding bodies with their extremity, which contains nematocysts. These would be the defenders of the colony. The others, which are are short, sterile, and spine-shaped, are called acanthozoids and are considered to provide shelter. Still others, the gonozoids yield sexual products. These various parts form a continuous whole. The cynosarc, furrowed by canals, fills the hydrorhiza and binds together the various hydrants without any discontinuity. Gastrozoids, dactylozoids, and gonozoids are all distinguished in millipores. In siphonophores, polymorphism is taken even further. These are floating colonies whose various elements originate at the expense of an initial jellyfish, from which the manubrium extends and buds. Nectozoids are found here, which are gastrozoids endowed with a large oscular orifice and very long tentacles. There are also dactylozooids to which a defensive role is attributed, and gonozoids. Sometimes a flat or leaf like lamina or phylozoid is supposed to protect the ensemble. According to Rabot, the finality indicated in the names is too accentuated. The role of the zooids is not too clear. It cannot be said that polymorphism results from a physiological division of labor. Indeed, the majority of the functions have been attributed uh, without a veritable examination of the mode of life of these colonies. The acanthozoids are completely useless and lacking in the majority of species. The aviculars of the bryozoans of the chylostome group are merely simple abnormal variations and not defensive organs. Rabot concludes by saying that the polymorphism of lenterates amounts to localized variations depending on the general metabolism of the siphonospore or hydractinia. Thus the difference between the life of a polymorphic colony and the life of a non-polymorphic colony is weak. The difference in look is considerable, but the mode of life and the functional properties are almost the same polymorphism arises neither from the influence of individuals on one another nor from the necessity of existence nor from another influence that determines polymorphism only the gastrozoids and gonozoids are individuals that fulfill a function all the others result in nothing but a deficit yeah lots of lots of zoids of different kinds yeah so there's a lot of sort of technical terms related to these organisms whatever they are Uh, i think these are kinds of anemones. I'm not mistaken, but I'm not super confident about that. But some of these technical terms are, I don't know what a hydrocolis or a peduncle is. I think the the general idea is, is relatively straightforward. It's just that in these types of organisms, you have these differentiated colonies, so polymorphic colonies. So the the individuals that make up the, the colony have um, a variety of different forms, whereas with other organisms, the individuals that make up a colony have the same form, or generally the the same form, so that the colony is not differentiated. So he's just going through some of the different forms that that these organisms can take on in this colony. And so that's the the basic idea here. But uh, he argues, uh, following Rabot, that um, we can't, look at this differentiation or, or we can't think of this di- differentiation as, as being some sort of division of labor or corresponding to, for example, the, the division of an organism into organs with specific functions. Uh, so the, the names of these different zoids uh, suggest that they have specific functions, but uh, in reality, the, the functional speci- specification is, is pretty limited and the, there's no sort of straightforward correspondence between the the shape of the, or the, the general structure of the zooid and the function it's supposed to serve in the colony.
1: So if the question that he starts this section with is, is individualization linked to specialization? Then at the end of that long paragraph, he talks about how gastrozoids and gonozoids are individuals that fulfill a function, which I guess means that they're, they're specialized. Is the answer to that question yes then
0: um i think the the general answer is going to be <clears throat> is going to be no i think you know we'll have to see as we go along but i think specialization is is not going to be a, a criterion for for individuation i think in the case of the the colony the specialization of, of functions is sort of a, a side effect uh i guess you could say uh, so it's not it's not generated by the degree of individuality of the component organisms. The, the specialization is sort of a, a, another, it's like tangential, I guess, to the question of whether, whether or not uh, an individual uh, or whether or not an organism within a colony is an individual and to what degree uh, they're individuated. So I think it's going to be sort of an independence question. Like the, the two questions are independent of each other.
1: Okay, thanks. That, that
0: makes sense. Yeah, and so in the, that last little bit, when he mentions that the gastrozoids and gonozoids uh, fulfill a function, so here he's, he's looking at the, this set of different uh, forms that occur within the colony, and uh, he's pointing out that only these two forms have a specific function, uh, and then the rest are are just they they result from a, a deficit of some kind, so they're they're imperfect forms of some kind, uh, and and so there's no um, direct relationship between the the specialization of these two functions uh, and then the um, the general differentiation of the the colony as a whole.
1: Uh, that makes sense. So there, he refers to them as individ- individuals, but not because they're specialized. They just happen to happen to also be specialized.
0: Yeah, and they're, they're individuals only in a relative sense. So they, they, um, right. they, they have a certain degree of individuality, uh, but because they, they share other functions, they, they um, have a collective um, side to them as well. Uh, but yeah, so they, they're individuals, um, and then some of those individuals are, are specialized, but that's an a independent uh, question. Okay, uh, so we can go on to the next page if someone else would like to read.
1: I can read the next uh, two-page paragraph, maybe like page and a half. Furthermore, it can be wondered if the relation among individuals allows us to define different degrees of individuality. Relative to reproduction, gestation, viviparity, and oboviviparity represent different modes and different types of relation. It is important to note that these relations are also found in cases that do not concern reproduction, but a certain form of association, like parasitism. There is even a profound functional analogy between the gestation of viviparis animals in cases of parasitism, parasitism like that of Monostroloida or sacculina. There are even cases of association constituted by a reciprocal parasitism of two individuals contemporaneous with one another. These cases are valuable for the theory of information systems. In some sense, they allow us to establish identities concerning the regime of information in the inter- individual relation, where a morphological examination would find nothing but superficial resemblances that we wouldn't dare to qualify as analogies, since the identity of rapport, which are constitutive for analogy, wouldn't appear to be very clear here. According to this path, it becomes possible to characterize quite a few relations relative to a single type of inter-individual rapport taken as a basis, that of reproduction. We are hypothetically treating the elementary forms of association, parasitism, as complements of reproduction. Indeed, when an individual has become completely autonomous, like an uh, like Eleven, that both swims and nourishes itself all on its own, this new individual is born absolutely. In contrast, when a relation continues to exist between the parent and the young in the form of humor, humoral, humoral nutritive interdependence, like when the fertilized ovule becomes implanted in the uterus according to a definite mode of placentation until birth, properly speaking, a phase of association that diminishes the embryo's degree of individualization that will be inserted between reproductive Reproduction, properly speaking, division of the egg, and the moment of full individuality. Even after birth, the young individual must be considered as still imperfectly individuated, uh, individualized. The relation to the parent extends for a longer or shorter time in the suckling phase, sometimes in an ongoing means of transportation, the marsupial pouch, bats, which is still akin to parasitism with an external fixation. We should further note that certain cases of parasitism are made possible by the fact that several animals have organs folds or appendices meant to allow for the easy fixation of their young there can then be a replacement of the young by an individual of another species and in this case it produces in place of the homophysial complex constituted by the union of the parent and the young a heterophysial complex constituted by the assemblage of an individual and its parasitic host the modifications of metabolism as well as all the morphological modifications that accompany them are approximately the same in the case of a heterophysial complex and that of a homophysial complex. A sacculinated male crab takes on a form comparable to that of a female. Uh, A pregnant female has the same reactions as a parasited animal. Moreover, the asymmetrical relation of parasitism leads the parasite to a regression. In the majority of parasitic species, it is impossible to speak of an adaptation to parasitism since this adaptation is a destruction of the organs that guarantee the being's individual autonomy. For example, the loss of the intestines frequently occurs in animals that, after having sought a host, settle themselves and nourish themselves at the expense of their host. It is not a question of an adaptation in the absolute sense of the term, but of a regression of the parasite's level of organization that ends up transforming the entire heterophysial complex into a being that does not have a level of organization superior to that of a veritable individual. It even seems that the level of of organization in the heterophysial complex is inferior to that of a single individual, since in the parasited being there is no progress, but instead phenomena of anamorphosis, which I guess is like morphological regression, Perhaps it should be said that in this case, the general level of information that information of the heterophysial complex is equal to the difference between that of the parasited individual and that of the parasite. The parasite can be a society of individuals. When the difference tends towards zero, the heterophysial complex is no longer viable, and it dissociates either with the death of the parasited being and the liberation of the, paras- of the parasite or with the parasite's death. Maybe I'll just finish this paragraph since it's finish this thought on parasitism. Um, Thus, it would be necessary to consider a heterophysial complex as a being less than a complete individual. Should we consider the homophysial complex in the same way? Rabot tends to do so by assimilating gestation to a veritable illness. However, this point deserves to be examined. In fact, while the conclusion of the level of organization is, is approximately stable in the case of a heterophysial complex, this conclusion is not always the same throughout the duration of the the homophysial complex. Pregnancy can correspond in certain cases to a greater resistance to infectious diseases and cold temperatures, as if a veritable heightening of vital functions were involved. Sensitivity to chemical agents is greater and reactions are more lively, which seems to indicate an increase in, in an adaptive polarization of sensory activity. Motor activity can also be heightened, which seems paradoxical due to the thickening of the body and the greater expenditure of energy. It therefore seems that in this case, the relation can be somewhat additional and somewhat subtracted depending on the circumstances and the metabolism of the embryo and of the mother. In parasitism, there's a kind of, in parasitism proper, I guess, there's a, there tends to be a decrease in the level of organization so that you could sum it up, like the total level of organization by subtracting that of the parasite from that of the host. Whereas in gestation, it's more complex and sometimes there's an increase and sometimes there's a decrease or maybe both at the same time in different ways. Yeah, I think
0: that's right. So the the question here is whether we can understand the degrees of individuality of of organisms in relation to their, whether we can uh, understand the degree of individuality uh, as Having something to do with the relations between the individuals and other individuals. The case of, of parasitism is uh, a test case for this uh, because the, the question is um, when you have a um, a parasite uh, attached to another organism, um, does the does that complex make up a whole that has a greater degree of individuality? Like, are there are there two individuals? In that complex, or does the the whole complex itself compose a single individual, or something like that? Uh, that's sort of the the general question that that is raised in this paragraph, and and so he will argue for uh, that in the case of parasitism, there's a decrease in the overall de- uh, degree of individuality uh, of both parties to the the parasitism relationships. so both the, the parasite and the host. So in the case of the host, the organism suffers from the effect of, of, of parasitism is, is to sort of, uh, as we'll see in a little bit later, it in, inhibits some of the development of the organism. Uh, so it's the organism has a, a lesser degree of individuality than it would if it were not uh, suffering from the the parasite. And then in the case of the the parasite, this lessening of individuality occurs in evolutionary history. So um, in many organisms that that are specialized for uh, parasitism, they, um, they the organs that they had earlier in, in evolutionary history disappear or uh, degenerate in some way. So that, like, uh, the example that he gives here is organisms that don't have an intestine, so they they can't actually assimilate food on their own anymore. They have to, they, the only way they can uh, achieve uh, nutrition is by parasitism on uh, another organism. And then, so in contrast to this case, the, the case of the pregnant animal, there are, cases where um where the pregnant animal actually has a greater uh it, its vital functions are are greater than they were prior to pregnancy so that the host doesn't suffer the the same type of loss of function or inhibition of development that that occurs in the case of uh, parasitism and then likewise the, the equivalent of the parasites of the uh developing organism within the pregnant animal, it it also doesn't have this degeneration over time into into an organism that is only capable of parasitism. And in fact, it's the opposite. So that the uh, developing organism initially lives in a a, a quasi-parasitic way by absorbing nutrients from the mother. Uh, But then as it develops over time, it becomes uh, capable of, of independent nutrition um, so we have a, a disanalogy between the two cases of, uh, of parasitism and pregnancy. Uh, and maybe just a, a note on terminology here. Uh, so he uses the term, the, ter- the two terms, uh, homophysio and heterophysio um i'm not sure i think these might be specific terms to simondon uh like he might have created these terms or they they could be biological terms that i'm not familiar with but the meaning clearly just means uh, of the same nature or different nature so in the case of the in, in the case of pregnancy you have two organisms from the same species so you have the 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 growing organism inside the pregnant uh, mother. And then they belong to the same species. So that's a homopysio case. Whereas in the case of parasitism, you have two different species associated together. And and so that's the heteropysio case. Yeah, so footnote 33 has a an explanation of these terms. I think that's added by the translator because there's, not, there's no, um, no footnote in the, the French version. He just uses the terms and assumes that the reader will know what he's talking about. Yeah, I'm not sure why the, uh, the translation puts all the notes at the end. It's uh, it's kind of annoying. I'm definitely on team footnote uh, as opposed to end note. Yeah, it's just a, a publisher's thing that for whatever reason they wanted to have nodes instead. Okay, so let's uh, go on to the next bit, um, so I can read uh, a page or so. Ultimately, we must distinguish asymmetrical parasitism from the symmetrical forms of association that are symbioses, as can be seen in lichens, which are compounds of an alga that parasites a fungus and a fungus that parasites an alga. Indeed, in this case, the total quality of organization of the beings constituted in this manner, exceeds that of a single individual. Indeed, in this case, the total quality of organization of the beings constituted in this manner exceeds that of a single individual. The morphological regression of each of the two beings is much less than in the case of pure parasitism, for a reciprocal causality binds the two beings according to a positive reaction. The activity of each being is translated by a greater capacity of activity for the partner. On the contrary, parasitism is founded on a negative reaction uh, that constitutes a mutual inhibition, or at the very least, an inhibition exerted by the parasite on the host. Thus, in the case where a parasited male presents the characteristics of a female, this analogy is due to the inhibitory influence exerted by the parasite on its host. The secondary sexual characteristics seem to be due to a dimorphism resulting from an inhibition in the female of corresponding characteristics that develop in the male alone. This inhibition, for example, this inhibition, for example, that which For an example of that which impedes the development of skin appendages appears in parasitism. In the reciprocal association of symbiosis, like that of an alga and a fungus, this double inhibition does not appear. Here, the recurrent causality is positive, which leads to an increase in the capacities of the formed ensemble. Lichens manage to thrive and prosper with a great luxuriance where no algae or fungus can. Like on a smooth concrete block exposed to frost and the intense sun in a dry atmosphere, subsisting between winter and summer in temperature differences of around 60 degrees Celsius and considerable differences in humidity. We even encounter luxuriant lichens in the tundra, where the snow covers the ground for several months at a time. These kinds of associations also describe the relationship between the hermit crab ensconced in a shell and sea anemones that settle onto the shell. The anemones would have an influence on the crab's prey, either because they attract them with their lively colours or because they paralyze them with their stinging elements. This thus facilitating capture for the hermit crab, which is not very mobile when it is in a shell. Moreover, and inversely, the scraps of the hermit crab's food are consumed by the sea anemone. This latter detail is more certain than that which concerns the usefulness of the anemones for the hermit crab. Nevertheless, we should note that the hermit crab has a tendency to put anemones on its shell. It uh, uh, on the shell it is sheltered in, and more generally, all objects, whether living or not, that it encounters with a lively color. In captivity this crab grabs all the colored scraps of paper offered to it and positions them on its back. Should this reflex be considered finalized? It is quite difficult to say and yet it seems that the crab itself is what constitutes the association, perhaps through a mimetic behavior. This is how certain zoologists interpret the reflex that ensures that this crab positions lively colored objects onto its back. But it should be recognized in this case that mimicry is quite clumsy because on a background of gray or black sand, the crab allows itself to be covered with red or yellow, which makes it quite visible. In fact, it can be supposed without irrationality that that, that the hermit crab constitutes this association and that once, once inserted into this cycle of causality, whatever the type of reflex or tropism may be that makes the crab act, the sea anemone develops due to conditions of life that are richer than the ones offered to it by the crab's food. Lastly, we should note that here, it is not a question of veritable parasitism, the sea anemone does not degenerate, but on the contrary exhibits an outstanding development. Indeed, it is nourished not due to the proboscis or suckers that inhale the substance of its hosts, but in a normal and habitual way. The proximity of the crab's claws and feelers merely puts it in a milieu that is richer in small assimilable debris, but a separate individual without any physiological continuity with the crab. Furthermore, the crab does not utilize the substances elaborated by the sea anemone, Which is on the shell that the crab dwells in, and yet it could be on any other shell or on a rock. Between the crab and the anemone, there is water and the shell, and this is why in this case we have a veritable society. Each individual remains individual but modifies the milieu in which the two individuals live. The relation between the individuals that form a society is established by way of the exterior milieu, and this is why there is a great difference between the cases of parasitism and those of association in the regime of causality and the exchange of information. The regime of inter-individual causality is completely different. We should also note that an alga and a fungus associated as a lichen are in fact, for one another, elements of the exterior milieu and not of the interior milieu. Following Shvendana's theory, the alga assimilates carbon through its chlorophyll, which is beneficial to the fungus. And the fungus protects the alga against desiccation by means of its filaments, which shelter it and allow it to live where it would have certainly died alone. This relation of two beings that are an equivalent of the exterior milieu through one another can include different topological modalities, but always with the same functional role. The thallus is differentiated from the apothecia. In certain species, the fungal filaments can be more concentrated in the periphery, constituting what is called the lichens cortex, while the center is the medulla. And the intermediate region is what contains the gonidia, cells of green algae analogous to those of rocks and soil. This lichen is called heteromeric. Uh, I guess I'll just finish this section here. On the contrary, in homomeric lichen, such as gelatinous lichen, the distribution of the fungal filaments and algae cells is homogenous. Lastly, it should be noted that this association goes up to the reproductive elements, including both the algae and the fungus. The soredia contains both the cells of the algae and the filaments of the fungus. These fragments detach from the lichen and are used for its multiplication. In contrast, the fructifications seem to belong to the fungus alone. They are composed of a hymenium, as in ascomycetic fungi, whose cells are asci intermixed with other sterile cells, the paraphyses, and are where spores form. Here, the association constitutes like a second individuality that is superposed on the individuality of the beings that are associated without destroying this individuality. Here, there is a reproductive system of society, qua society, and a reproductive system of the fungus, qua fungus. The association does not destroy the individualities of the individuals that constitute it. On the contrary, the parasitic type of relation reduces the individuality of the beings. That of placent- placentiation, placentation is intermediate. It can evolve in one of two directions, both toward that of society as well as that of parasitism. Furthermore, it is highly evolutive and in this sense is transformed. Like parasitism, the association is static. It is important to note this aspect both in the case of stable states as well as in the case of placentation, i.e. the parasitism that tends to become a temporary society. It seems in this sense possible to consider all forms of association as mixtures of parasitism and of the perfect society that ends in the formation of a veritable secondary social individuality, a compound like the one that appears in the algae fungus grouping. There is no association that is exempt from a certain parasitism, and thus from a certain regression that reduces the individuality of the beings grouped together. But moreover, pure parasitism is rare since it tends to destroy itself through a sort of internal necrosis that it develops in the group within which parasitism takes place, making this group's level of organization fall to a very low level. The concrete group can be considered as intermediate between complete society and pure parasitism. the level of organization that characterizes the group is the difference between that of the parasitized and that of the parasite. Um, So here um, this long like three-page paragraph um, is is about distinguishing the case of um, uh, what's sometimes called commensalism, uh, um, so mutual um, association as opposed to parasitism uh, in which uh, one organism serves as the host, and the other one as the uh, as the parasite. Um, so the the key examples that he he talks about here are are the case of lichens, um, and uh, the case of the the crab and the anemone. Um, and lichens are especially interesting because they uh, like they're they're completely. Uh, interwoven with each other and so a, a lichen is made up of a, a, an alga and a fungus that um, uh, grow together um, and uh, as, as uh, Simondel mentions here the lichen uh, the associated form can live in environments where neither form on its own neither of the two associated uh, organisms on their own can survive so uh, lichens grow on bare rock where, um, where the alga would not be able to survive on its own. Um, uh, and then the fungus uh, would not be able to survive there either because it, it wouldn't have uh, any source of, of nutrients. Uh, but the association of the alga and the fungus together um, is able to, to survive in this uh, very harsh environment of, of bare rock and uh and lichens actually um break down rock uh over the long term uh and so that's like part of the formation of of soils i think if I, if i'm not mistaken um is uh the you know, breakdown of rocks by by lichen over many thousands of years um and uh <clears throat> yeah so th- these uh associations are are very um uh effective in, in, uh, sort of, um, allowing organisms to survive and, and, uh, prosper in environments where they, they wouldn't be able to otherwise. And the, uh, the specific species of, of, uh, algae and, and fungus that, uh, that form, um, lichens are are completely specialized for that, uh, association. So they, they, um, they reproduce, uh, in such a way that they, uh, they they have to grow into a lichen uh they they don't appear as uh independent uh algae and fungus out, outside of the lichen association the, so yeah that, that's the the one example of a that's like a, a stock example in in biology of of uh commensalism uh and then the other example that that simon Ron talks about is the the case of the hermit crab that um uh that Puts the anemone on its shell, um, so uh, the specific um, benefit to the hermit crab is not 100% clear. Uh, at least at the time that Simondon was writing, uh, so it could be that um, the uh, anemone's uh, stingers uh, will paralyze the prey, and then which allows the crab to um, to grasp it uh, more easily. Uh, or it could be that the colors of the uh, anemone attract prey, um, uh, or, or it could be something else completely. Um, but in any case, the, the fact that the crab actually um, actively goes out and, and uh, puts the anemone on its back um, suggests that there's some sort of function that that the anemone is performing for um, for the the crab, um, like we. Presumably, if the crab actually puts the anemone on its back, uh, it's getting something out of it as well. And then the other side is that the anemone um, gets all the scraps from the the crab's uh, food. Um, They float around and the anemone can can grab them. So uh, the difference between, so in this case, compared to... um, uh, a parasitism. Uh, the reason why this this is not a case of parasitism is that the the crab and the anemone are um, completely distinct uh, physiologically. Like there's no um, physi- physiological connection between them. The, there's a, a shell uh, that separates the crab from the anemone. Um, and uh, remember also that hermit crabs are the ones that uh, um, they they take the shells that they find uh, from other organisms. Uh, so the shell is not even attached to the, the body of the hermit crab. And uh, uh, so yeah, there's no, there's no physiological connection between the anemone and the hermit crab. Um, and and the, they each uh, neither party to this association has the, the degeneration or the simplification that's characteristic of a, a relation of parasitism. So, yeah, that's, that's why we um, would want to distinguish this case of uh, association from uh, the case of, uh, of parasitism.
1: So when he, when he talks about the concrete group at the end of that long paragraph, he says it can be considered as an intermediate between complete society and pure parasitism. Um, I wasn't sure what he was referring to there because it seems like uh, there isn't really anything parasitic in the... Crab and enemy relationship, or the uh, the lichen relationship, um, because of this physiological separation that you were talking about.
0: Um, Yeah. So in in uh, in this case, so so there's um, there's I guess we can think about degrees of of parasitism. Um, So to the extent that the crab. Is dependent on its association with the anemone, or um, if if it's more capable of surviving and and reproducing and everything um, uh, when it's in the, an association with the anemone, um, then to that extent, it is um, it's uh, uh, we can characterize it as a, a relationship of of, of parasitism. Um, Only to the extent that the the crab is no longer fully independent of the association with uh, with the anemone.
1: Okay, Um,
0: yeah. So the 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 fact that um, or in the case of the the lichen is even uh, a stronger instance of this, where the two um, the two component organisms are completely dependent on each other to uh, to survive in in the environments that the lichen normally grows in. So, there's uh, uh, a degree, the degree of individuality of the component organisms is lesser than um, it would be if they were living as separate organisms. Um, so, it, to that extent, there's a certain amount of uh, uh, parasitism in these relationships, even though in other respects, the, the relationship is very different from uh, the more straightforward instances of, of parasitism. Okay,
1: cool. Uh yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It seems like a lot of inter individual relations would have some degree of parasitism in this sense.
0: Yeah, and and even if we look at the other side, um like in the case of of what we would unambiguously call parasites, there's also in in that relationship there's some degree of uh association in the sense that uh the interest of the parasite is for the host to survive um and uh um, be able to continue to provide nutrition to the parasite. So, if the parasite um, kills off its host too quickly, then the parasite uh, itself will die or won't be able to re- reproduce. And, and, uh, and so, that's not in, in its interest either. So, the, there's a, a certain degree of shared interest between the, the parasite organism and the host organism, uh, even though um, in other respects, the, the parasite is. Uh, living at the expense of the host organism and, and they have opposed interests.
1: Right. Uh, that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So there's, um, in each case, um, so we, we never have, um, uh, a pure case of a hundred percent parasitism or a hundred percent, um, mutuality, uh, each, each case that is, uh, uh, each case that we find is, um, a mixture of the two with varying amounts, um, either, you know, tending towards mutuality or tending towards parasitism, uh, but in, in some mixture.
1: I thought that this, uh, where he's talking about in the middle of that last page on 221, he talks about the reproductive system of society qua society. That sounds like it like a good definition of uh, like the abstract machine in Deleuze and Guattari, at least as I understand
0: it, hmm. I uh, don't remember that as well as I uh, as I should to be able to uh, comment on whether or not that makes sense. Um, yeah, so I'm not 100 sure.
1: I mean, I I guess I understand it as uh, sort of the something emergent in the, you know, um, like the wasp orchid hybrid. Um, I guess there's a way that, 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 uh, society of different animals reproduces itself, uh, as something separate from the, uh, the wasp and the orchid on their own.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, so in the case of the, the lichen, um, so even in, in, in like the actual physiological structure of the reproductive system of the, the two component organisms, so they, they, um, they produce this, um, what is it called? This soridia, I believe, um, this um, uh, structure that um, contains both uh, the alga and, uh, yeah, soridia. Um, it contains cells of the alga and of the, the fungus um, that it then goes on to, to grow and, and reproduce. Um, so the, the actual association of uh, uh, the fungus and the, the alga is uh, itself reproduced. Um, uh, and so the, the lichen as such is what reproduces rather than each individual component of the lichen. Yeah, one, one bit that I think um, would be interesting to, to look at is um, when he talks here about um, societies, um, you know, the formation of societies and, and the social um, social individuality. So the, the idea of a, a perfect society would be um, an association uh, in which there would be a production of this secondary individuality, um, but in such a way that there is no uh, degree of, of parasitism. So there's no reduction of the individuality of the components. Uh, so it would, it's as if the, the lichen case were were, um, were um, to come about in a way that the, uh, the alga and the fungus would preserve their individuality uh, completely. And then you would have a, a second order organism uh, or second order um, uh, individuation uh, on top of the individuation of the alga and the fungus and and so the lichen would would form like a, a, a second level of individuality on top of the first one um, so that's that's this idea of this perfect society um, but I, I'm interested I'm yeah I'm interested in uh, how this uh, understanding of, of uh, a social organization um, maps on to what he mentioned uh, earlier in, in the first chapter of this part, um, where he distinguishes between uh, societies um, and uh, the, the, the trans-individual um, collective, and uh, um, what was the third form? Uh, I forget, there were, there were three. Um, uh, the inner individual, maybe? Right, yes, yeah, the inner individual, that's right. Um, uh, yeah so the we have the society um on the one hand is is set out as co- being constituted of uh differentiated individuals uh so that the uh, um, the each individual has uh, an assigned function in the society uh that it's specialized in um, and then uh the inter individual is um sort of a uh, a relationship between already constituted individuals um, and the, um, I guess the, the paradigm example of that would be like economic exchange in a, a human society where you have um, parties that are treated as uh, uh, being equal parties that exchange goods uh, in, some, uh, in some way after like they're already constituted individuals and then they come into this exchange relationship uh, and then the trans individual is um, this uh, collective individuation that takes place. Uh, so it's a, a, re, a re-individuation uh, of, uh, of the organism or of the individual um, that takes place in this collective form. Uh, um, and yeah, so I'd be interested to see how this uh, concept of the perfect society that he's developing here Um, how it maps on to that earlier discussion uh, and the the specific um, meaning that he gives to the term society in that context. Um, Yeah, maybe just before we go on to the next bit, we can, uh, I'll just mention that there's a couple of um, uh, footnotes throughout that long uh, paragraph that are... um, Basically, just explaining the uh, the relationship between the the fungus and the alga in in the lichen, um, and so those are yeah the, they're worth uh, looking at just to have some some more notes about how it works. Um, like the basic idea is that the the alga performs photosynthesis. Um, it uh, so it absorbs energy from sunlight and and uh uh produces sugars out of uh out of the carbon in the air um and then the uh the fungus um uh absorbs nutrients from the the alga um, and uh at the same time it uh protects the alga from uh drying out um so that's the sort of general uh, relationship between the two components of the lichen. But there's there's yeah some more stuff in the footnotes if you're interested to uh, take a look at lichens in more detail. Okay, so let's start uh, subsection three. If someone else would like to read
1: um, subsection three, individuation information and the structure of the individual. The very important question that is yet to be posed is one that consists in knowing what the structure of individuality is. Where does the organizing dynamism of the individual reside? Is it consubstantial with the individual, or instead is it localized in some fundamental elements that would regulate the ensemble of the individual organism? This is the question posed for all individuals, and also particularly for those that undergo metamorphoses which is a sort of reproduction of the being on the basis of itself, a reproduction without multiplication, a reproduction of unity and identity, but without similarity, during which the being becomes completely other while remaining an individual, which seems to show that the individuality does not reside in self resemblance and in the fact of not being modified, thus leading us to exclude the idea of an individuality fully consubstantial with the whole being. The research conducted by biologists have borne either on the development of the egg, uh, Dalk's studies on the egg and its organizing dynamism, or the metamorphoses of certain animals, particularly those of the insects in which the passage through the nymph stage implies an important reorganization of the organism after a quite extensive de-differentiation. In the first case, it seems that differentiation by far precedes the appearance of anatomically and cytologically distinct regions. In the stage of the division into macromeres and micromeres, an ablation on one part of the egg already produces the disappearance or atrophy of a particular part of the body, although we might think it would operate on a continuous mass. The continuum is already heterogeneous, as if a veritable polarity appeared in the egg, barely beginning to be segmented. In the nymph, several imaginal disks uh, direct the reorganization of a mass that has undergone a profound de-differentiation. The individual structure can therefore be reduced to several elements starting from which it extends to the whole mass. This theory of organizers seems to indicate that living matter can be the basis of certain fields that are poorly known and that can neither be measured nor revealed by any currently known procedure. They can only be compared to the formation of crystals, or rather crystalline figures in a supersaturated milieu, or a milieu that is in other conditions favorable to crystallization. But this case is not absolutely analogous, since the crystal is indefinite in its growth in principle, whereas the individual seems to have limits. Truly speaking, the formation of crystals would instead be comparable to the growth of a colony, which doesn't develop in any specific direction, in any specific way, but according to directions that it favors during its development. There is an orientation at the basis of these two processes. Uh, a polarity... Oh, Sorry. Right. Okay. Uh, there's an orientation at at the basis of these two processes, a polarity that makes it such that the individual being is capable of growing and reproducing with a certain polarity, i.e. analogically with respect to itself, based on its organizing germs in a transductive way, insofar as this property of analogy is not exhausted. Analogy relative to itself is characteristic of the individual being and it, it is the property that allows us to recognize the latter. There is a preparation of individuality every time that a polarity is created, every time that an asymmetrical qualification, an orientation, and an order appear. The condition of individuation resides in this existence of potentials that allow matter to be polarized, whether living or not. Furthermore, there is a reversibility between the condition of polarity and the existence of potentials. Every field makes polarities appear in initially non-oriented milieus, like a field of mechanical forces in a portion of glass, which modifies its optical properties, for example. However, until now, studies on the polarization of matter, as interesting and suggestive as they may be, have remained fragmentary and partially uncoordinated. An entire theory of polarization is to be made that would no doubt further clarify the rapport of what we call living matter or organized matter and inert, and, and inert or inorganic matter. It indeed seems that non-living matter is already organizable and that this organization precedes any passage to functional life, as if organization were a sort of intermediate static life between inorganic reality and functional life, properly speaking. The latter would be that in which a being reproduces itself, whereas in non-living matter, the individual indeed produces effects on other individuals but does not generally produce individuals similar to it. The physical individual does not convey any other message than its own capacity to grow. Uh, it is not quote unquote hereditary substance to use the expression by which Rebo designates the living individual. Thus a photoelectron falling onto a target can emit secondary electrons, which are many from a single photoelectron. But these secondary electrons are not the descendants of the first electron or photoelectron. They are the descendants of other electrons emitted at the moment of the photoelectron striking against a metal plate, photomultiplier tubes, or against a molecule of gas ionization chamber. So one distinction that I think he's drawing here that isn't entirely clear to me is this distinction between self-resemblance and analogy relative, you know, self-analogy, basically. Um, seems like he's rejecting the idea of self-resemblance, which would exclude uh, eggs, basically, or uh, animals that undergo uh, metamorphosis. But there's something about self-analogy that um, that you know allows for the preservation of the individual in a way that self-resemblance does not
0: yeah that's a that's a good question um i think that's sort of the the key point of this um paragraph is to make that distinction um so he um yeah so the, the the idea um maybe like a a sort of naive idea of what the individuality of a a being would consist in is the fact that it uh resembles itself over time um so the Organism at time t one is going to resemble organism at time t two, and and so on. Um, um, that would be sort of like a, a first pass at what you would tr- how you would try to explain the um, individuality of an organism uh, uh, over time. Um, but the, the problem with that is, uh, of course, that there there is um, the organisms undergo. Uh, development and change over time uh, to, um, in some organisms, very high degrees uh, of change. Uh, so in the case of insects that have um, a larval or a, a nymph stage, um, they, they will, um, like uh, butterflies, for example, they, they, they're born as, or they're hatched as um, caterpillars, uh, and then they they have one sort of mode of life where they eat leaves or whatever um, for a certain amount of time. And then they uh, form a, a chrysalis and then they uh, undergo a process of uh, de-differentiation of, of all the organs that uh, existed in the caterpillar. And then they emerge after a while as a, a butterfly with a completely different mode of life where they um, feed off of flowers and, and uh um and so on so the the um there's not a lot of resemblance uh in terms of the properties or the uh, mode of life or anything like that between a caterpillar and uh, um, a butterfly um and um and so this this is the problem of uh you know how what does the individuality of uh, a butterfly over its lifespan consist in uh, that includes both the uh, caterpillar stage and the butterfly stage, um, and and so this notion of um, analogy, uh, I think, like we always have to whenever he uses the terminology, we always have to think of transduction because um, already in the introduction he talked about how transduction is is what is valid about analogical reasoning. Um, and uh, and so transduct- transduction is both a mode of thinking and uh, uh, an aspect of uh, of reality. Um, and in this case, he's talking about um, this aspect of reality. So there's a transductive relationship between the um, the larval form or the nymph form of the organism and the uh, adult form. So. Um, in this case, he's talking about how the um, there's a, a certain polarization of um, either the egg or the undifferentiated state of the the uh, of the caterpillar inside the chrysalis. Um, so they, it it takes on this undifferentiated form, but within that undifferentiated form, there's there's still this polarization. So there's a um, one end that uh, goes on to form the head and one end that forms the tail, um, and there's an up and down direction uh, and so on. so the the uh, what appears to be a homogeneous um, uh, egg or um, homogeneous um, mass undergoing metamorphosis uh, has this differentiation uh, within it in this mysterious way. Uh, and then uh, the the transformation um, of the that homogeneous mass into a differentiated individual occurs along those axes of polarization. Um, so there's a a a, transform, a gradual transformation um, of the homogeneous mass into the structured differentiated individual. Um, and and so he's comparing that to or he's he's describing that as a transductive operation so it, he's comparing it to the case of the crystal that um that uh, crystallizes gradually across the whole um, um mass of of liquid in which uh, the the seed is um uh implanted um so this is so yeah so this is why it's. Uh, it's a transductive or analogical relationship, uh, uh, between the, the different stages of the organism rather than a, uh, uh, a relationship of resemblance, um, because the, the, um, the capacity for the transformation is, is part of the concept of uh, a transductive relationship. Uh, uh, whereas, uh, in the case of resemblance, that capacity for transformation is not, um, is, is actually excluded uh, from that, that concept um, and then there's uh, um, and so he so he compares the the growth of um, or the development of, of the egg from the um, undifferentiated uh, undifferentiated state in which it, it appears at the early stages uh, and into a differentiated organism so he compares that development to uh, the, the growth of a crystal, um, but it differs in certain respects as well because um, in the case of the egg, um, there's a certain stage. So at the, at the earliest stages of the, of the growth of the egg, you can uh, cut off a portion of the egg and, uh, and then it still grows into uh, an individual organism that looks the same as, uh, as a, a normal one. Um, Um, just it'll be a little bit smaller is all um but then once you reach a certain stage in the development of the egg uh, even though the egg looks uh externally like it's a a homogenous mass of uh of material um if you cut off a portion of it then the organism will develop missing a portion of its body um so uh, already at the stage even though the the egg looks uh, homogenous um, you already at that stage there's a, a portion that corresponds to the head and, and another portion that corresponds to one of the limbs and so on um, and uh, uh, so removing uh, any portion of that of that egg uh, will result in a, an, a mutilated uh, uh, organism that that develops out of the egg um, Whereas in the case of the crystal, um, there's no, there's no, uh, sort of overall structure of the crystal. So the, if you take a crystal and, uh, cut off a piece of it, uh, and then, um, uh, allow it to put it back in the, uh, solution and allow it to grow again, it just grows around that part that you cut off in the same way as it grows everywhere else. Um, so there's no, um, there's no overall structure. Uh, there's, there's no sort of um, general form of the crystal that it has to uh, um, that it has to fit. Uh, so that that's one um, difference between the the case of the the crystal growth and the case of the development of an organism out of an egg. And so, because of this disanalogy um, or this um, difference between the two cases, he says that actually the 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 better analogy is between the growth of, a, of the crystal and the growth of a colony uh, in, in the case of these organisms that have this colony form. Um, so the, the colony, like the crystal, has a certain structure. Uh, it, Like um, we, we saw, uh, I think, last week or the week before, um, there's this particular kind of organism where the colony always has a cross shape because the four um, outermost organisms Uh, survive and the ones on the inside die off and form like a, a a sort of core around which the the four external ones grow um and uh and so the the colony has this overall structure and then other organisms um um the colony has this overall shape that that is always preserved um through growth uh likewise the crystal has this uh the crystalline structure that um uh is is characteristic of uh, a crystal formed of that substance um but there's no um there's no sort of guiding uh principle of differentiation or something like that there's nothing um uh like again if you cut off a piece of a crystal there's nothing that makes the crystal regrow the portion that you cut off it just grows uh, around that uh that portion in the, in the way that it would grow uh if you hadn't cut it um so yeah, so because of this, the uh, the strict the stricter analogy is between the growth of a colony and the growth of uh, of the crystal, and so that's a, a closer analogy than the the development of the egg to the the growth of a crystal.
1: Um, one thing that this section made me think of is, it seems like this argument against self-resemblance could also be an argument against. I guess uh ethical positions based on an idea of authenticity that is you know kind of like coincidence with yourself, but maybe it also leaves open the possibility of an idea of authenticity based on self analogy rather than self resemblance
0: yeah, that's an interesting uh suggestion um, yeah, so something like um I don't know, like there, you, you hear um, sort of a like a I don't know pop culture or pop psychology um, kind of uh, advice or or self help uh, kind of um, advice that you hear people say that you have to be true to yourself or or something like that, um, which would suggest that there's <clears throat> that there's something like uh, some uh, core set of properties or 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 essence of a, a person that um, that they can, uh, that persists throughout life, uh, that the individual has to, um, in some way, orient their behavior towards, uh, so so that there would be some sort of um, harmony or accordance between the behavior and this um, uh, personal essence or something like that. Um, And uh, so that type of um, representation of of ethics, would be, um, yeah, that, that would, that would fall under the, the case of the self-resemblance type of, um, uh, position that Simondon was criticizing here. Um, the, what would, what would be more interesting to, is to see if, yeah, as you suggested, if you can come up with an account of, uh, something like authenticity, that would, um, that would be an authenticity that is, uh, Develops through transformation. Uh, So uh, it would be this analogical relationship rather than um, uh, a relationship of self resemblance. So um, rather than having something like uh, an essence of a person that has to be preserved or or that uh, behavior has to um, be in accordance with, there would be something like uh, a process of self transformation over time um, in such a way that each um, each stage of the development uh, or the transformation is uh arises out of the the preceding one in some sort of um harmonious or uh, suitable way in whatever exactly that means um but it would it would be a, yeah an ethics of of self-transformation rather than an ethics of um uh, corresponding to a a, a personal essence and there's in this he starts to introduce a contrast in non-living uh, matter um, or uh, vital individuation and physical individuation um, in a more... Um, what he sets out as the distinction between the two is that um, the, in the case of um, living organisms or, or in vital individuation, the, uh, the individual reproduces itself Um, So there's uh, um, this this analogical relationship between the the individual uh, and itself uh, over time uh, or this transductive relationship uh, of the individual over time to itself. Um, Whereas in the case of physical individuation, um, there's, there's um, there's no... self-reproduction there's only the production of effects of various kinds Uh, and and so the the case that he um points to here is um uh well i think he actually makes it more sort of specific than he needs to um but in the case of an electron um that strikes uh, a, a metal plate um so you have one electron that's uh Um, fired at the plate and then uh, when it strikes the plate there's an emission of uh, secondary electrons so um, there's a a sort of reproduction um, of electrons at work here but uh, it's not um, there's nothing about the secondary electrons that is um, uh, sort of a product of the first electron Uh, there's no um there's no sort of relation of descendants between the first electron and the secondary electrons. The the secondary electrons have no properties that they derive from the fact that they derive from the the first uh, electron. So, um, in this sense, it's not the the initial electron is not reproducing itself. It's just producing an effect, which is to release these secondary electrons from the um, metal plate and uh, um, so there's no, uh, even though there's, uh, at one sort of um, level of analysis, you can describe it as a reproduction. Um, it's more, more precisely, it's it's not um, it's not actually a reproduction. It's just the production of effects. Uh, and so this is um, uh, this example is a uh, sort of illustrates the the way that um, physical individuation differs from vital individuation. So yeah, I. Uh, I promised a while ago that we were done with um, quantum physics, but there's actually a little bit uh, still here, so you can't escape it. Um, it's not there's not too much. There's just this one passage, I think, uh, in, this, in this bit. But uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll read the next um, page or so here. In these conditions, the individuality and origin of the first electron hardly matters. It can involve a photoelectron, but also a thermoelectron, thyrotron, or an electron emitted by some other procedure for example with the ionization of a gas, a Geiger counter. The result does not change for the emission of secondary electrons and for example, there is no way to discriminate the secondary electrons originating from the multiplication of the electrons of the dark current of an ionization chamber or of a photomultiplier from those that originate from veritable photoelectrons. There's no individual marking of electrons and not even a specific marking in terms of their origin, at least with the procedures of measurement at our disposal. On the other hand, this marking is possible in physiology, and it seems to constitute one of the profound characteristics of individuality, linking the individual back to its particular genesis. Regeneration, which supposes an imminence of the organizing schema for each individual, and a conservation within it of the dynamism by which it has been produced, does not seem to exist in physics. A sawed-off crystal does not regenerate when it is put back into a mother liquor. It continues to grow, but without favoring the side that was amputated. On the contrary, a living being is activated and disturbed by a severance, and its growth occurs much more actively on the side of the amputation than on the surfaces that remain intact, as if the imminence of an organizing dynamism distinguished the surface that has undergone a severance. Perhaps it is not possible to predict the point on which research would have to bear in order to clarify this relation between individuality and polarization. Nevertheless, another aspect of the question is beginning to emerge that is different from the previous one, but no doubt connected to it. A possible path of study is situated in the interval that separates these two directions and in the sector that they mark out without structuring it. The second research is the one that is preoccupied with determining the relation between quanta and life. The quantum aspect of physics is found in biology and is perhaps one of the characteristics of individuation. It would be that one of the principles of organization is a functional quantum law that defines the thresholds of the functioning of the organs and thus effectuates organization. The nervous system whatever its degree of complexity may be is not merely composed of an array of chemical conductors between these electrochemical conductors there is a relational system on several levels a systemics that presents characteristics of operation that are akin to what is called relaxation in physics and what is sometimes called in physiology the all or nothing anglo-american biologists and neurologists willingly use the expression to fire to discharge like a gun in order to characterize this operation which supposes that a certain quantity of potential energy is accumulated and then exerts its effect completely and all of a sudden, not continuously. Not only do the different effectors appear to function according to this law, but the centers themselves, which are organized as an interconnection of relays that facilitate or inhibit one another, are regulated by this law. Thus, although in an organism, everything is linked back to everything else, physiologically speaking, various and structured regimes of causality can be established due to the laws of quantum functionalities a quantity that does not reach a certain threshold is virtually no for all the relays that are temporarily at a certain level of triggering, and the message that is transmitted by this information is guided only down the paths where passage is possible, with an operation of relays that have a threshold below the energetic level of the message considered. These characteristics of operation can furthermore be something besides the pure quantity of energy. A temporal modulation can intervene, for example, a frequency, but certainly less universally than LAPIC would think at the time when he established the theory of synaptic relays with the notion of uh, clanaxie. It would seem that this operation, which creates a structured regime of information in in an individual, should require a preliminary morphological differentiation with the nervous system in particular. Yet it could be precisely that quantum actions exerted on the level of the large molecules of organic chemistry find a facilitation or an inhibition in certain directions according to a law of thresholds based on the quantum properties of energy exchanges. And then there would be a root of organization as a heterogeneity of paths of exchange in a mass that is nevertheless continuous. Before any anatomical differentiation, the heterogeneously continuous supplies through a slight quantity of energy, the first elements of a regime of the conditioning of the exercise of a greater quantity of potential energy, which is the starting point of a regime of information in a milieu makes possible the processes of amplification. I'll just read this last paragraph here too. Perhaps the separation between the physical individual and the living individual could be established by means of the following criterion. Information in the operation of physical individuation is not distinct from the supports of the the potential energy that is actualized in the manifestations of organization. In this sense, there would be no remote relays without life. On the contrary, individuation in the living being would be founded on the distinction between the modulating structures and the supports of potential energy implied in the operations characterizing the individual. The structure and dynamism of relays would therefore be essential to the living individual, and this is why, according to this hypothesis, it would be possible to define different levels in the regime of information for the physical individual and for the living individual. The living being is itself a modulator. It has a power supply, an energy, an input or a memory, and an effector system. The physical individual requires the milieu as a source of energy and as an effective charge. The milieu supplies information, receives singularity. Uh, So first, um, he's developing the point further about the electrons. Um, So that's just what I was um, mentioning a little bit earlier about how in the case of the electrons, there's no way to distinguish the source electron uh, in terms of its uh, nature. <clears throat> so um, the the, uh, the secondary electrons that are emitted um, after the, the first electron uh, hits the, the metal plate, the, the those secondary electrons don't convey any information about the the nature of the first electron, so how it, it was uh, generated in the first place. Uh, so there's no, um, there's nothing like, um, uh, there's, n- there's no form of reproduction of the uh, electron in this production of secondary electrons in the sense that there's no, there's no um, uh, transductive relationship between the uh, initial electron and the uh, electrons that are emitted afterwards. Um, And then he he also points to, in the case of physical individuation, um, the case of the crystal where once you you cut off a a portion of the crystal and then put it back into the the liquid, uh, it just continues to grow in the same way as it was growing before. It doesn't do anything to sort of uh, regenerate the portion that was cut off or something like that. Whereas with living organisms, um, even in, in cases where an organism is not capable of regenerating a, a limb or something like that, there's still this growth of uh, scar tissue. Um, so there's a, a differentiated growth in terms of the, the portion that is amputated. Um, so the, uh, um, what he calls here the organizing dynamism uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the living individual Um, is maintained across the whole body of the individual, Uh, whereas in the case of the crystal, um, there's only, uh, the I guess, the equivalent of the organizing dynamism would just be the the surface of the crystal that uh, brings about the crystallization of uh, an initial layer of the surrounding fluid, uh, but there's no uh, overall uh, organizing dynamism in the sense of uh, a principle that structures the crystal as a whole. And then he goes on to this bit about uh, quantum physics and its relation to biology, um, which is a little bit weird, um, I would say. Um, But he, so he he sort of prefaces this by by saying that it's um, uh, an area that needs to be researched more and it's not even uh, entirely clear uh, exactly what type of research would be required in order to uh, to get the the required knowledge um, about this relationship, because um, it's not it's not um, a strictly uh, a question of quantum physics, um, and it's not it's not a, a biology question uh, in the sort of traditional sense either. Um, <clears throat> so it's it's some sort of like physics biology um, uh, interaction or something like that is is what we need. And then, um, so what he the the point where he he sort of makes the connection between quantum physics and uh, biology is the fact that uh, many biological processes and in particular um, the functioning of nervous systems involve some sort of threshold effect. Um, so, uh, like in in uh, nerve cells, um, there's uh, some sort of um, Uh, input that comes in uh and um if that input is below a certain threshold then the the nerve cell does nothing uh and then if it if the input is above a certain threshold then the the nerve cell will fire and uh send uh, a signal onto the uh the other nerve cells that are connected to it um and uh and so it has this all or nothing uh um response to to input uh and and so this he's comparing this to the the um in the case of um micro micro physics uh so in the case of subatomic particles um there's a similar um all or nothing effect in in the sense that um there's a, there's discrete uh, uh quanta of action so you for example the um uh electrons can only appear at certain orbits um, around the atomic nucleus. And um, if energy is uh, inputted into the system, then the electron will pass from one orbit to another one without um, without inhabiting the uh, intermediate stages or intermediate energy states. Um, uh, so he's comparing this uh, discreteness of the effect in uh, in neurons to the discreteness in effect in um, in subatomic particles um, um, and then he's he's suggesting that um, uh, and and this is sort of given as a, a speculative um, suggestion um, but the the suggestion here is that um, in the case of the large molecules um, uh, that make up a living organism, so the organic um, compounds uh, in an organism that there could be some sort of um effect of the uh, quantum processes the the uh, subatomic um, interactions that that have this discrete nature um. Could be either inhibited or um, uh, facilitated by the, the structure of these uh, um, large organic compounds. So, that, um, the, the um, discreteness of effect in, in living organisms would be a consequence of the discreteness of effect in the, in the case of subatomic particles that would just be sort of amplified by these um, organic compounds. Um, but yeah, he he gives this as um, a sort of speculative suggestion, and not um, something that has been established by by research yet.
2: Two thoughts, like uh, about the discussion you made so far. Can, can you finished. What do you want to say? Or yeah, can, yeah. Can I say? Yeah. 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 F- first one is like it's quite interesting. Like you point out, like why counterfeit is coming here. Um, I think that has to do with, like, a, we, uh, we should go back to the, the first question he um, presented in the beginning of this part. So going back to the very first part, and the question he uh, posed, like, where does organizing dynamism of the individual reside? Is it consubstantial with the individual? or instead is it is localized in some of the fundamental elements that would regulate the ensemble, the individual organism, something like that. Here what I understood is that um, we can't find the origin, hereditary origin of the all individuation, instead every genesis has its own singularity, like I think we can. We can't find. We can trace trace origin. We can only trace like elements of each genesis. Um, because, as far as I understand in this section, it seems that like we can't. Like I mean, his he, kind of a conclusion is that like. Um, the individuality like they're not the co- consubstantial, right? Like uh the whole thing. Like each transform uh transformation like uh change is like derived from like a it's different kind of like a, a mechanism of the transformation like so it's we can't you can't like bring any kind of linear po- process of development. So in order to explain, I think Dong brought up uh, quantum physics, here, In terms of the uh, mechanism of the, uh, as far as I understand, like a uh, quantum physics, like it, it shows the probability of the uh, existence, probability of possibility, probability of the, um, how do I say, like the how how quantum, how um, it could, uh, uh but of course like a. Uh, physics is physics but if you think like quantum physics the the mechanism they are, it it has to do with like a, the multiple probability of i mean it's quite different from like the newtons like you know classical the the more some dy, dy, dynamic i mean physics is something like that it it we, we can't exactly like explain like the why something can coexist at the same time? Like, uh, I mean, even like we can um, think of like a, m- much more possibilities, like a, in terms of a uh, tempor- uh, spatial, temporality. So, uh, in order to <clears throat> singular process of synapsis, quantum physics needed the, like a, in terms of the um, movement of the quantum as a kind of like elements of the old transformation? It's kind of random thinking, but I hope I can get some ideas from you.
0: Um, Yeah, so I think, um, hmm. I'm not sure if um, the role of the quantum physics here is exactly a a role of um, a mechanism that he that he's uh, setting out for um, individuation uh, I think he what he wants to do here is to uh, uh, contrast physical and uh, and vital individuation so he wants to um, explain the difference between um, the individuation of, of physical uh, at the physical level and any the individuation at the vital level um, so um, but he also wants to um, suggest, at least, that there's some sort of uh, um, uh, analogy or, um, or even, um, uh, I guess you could call it a, a grounding of the vital individuation um, in certain properties of physical individuation. So it's precisely that discreteness of action in the case of vital individuation that he wants to point back towards the discreteness of action in the case of uh, uh, quantum physics um, and uh, um, yeah so I think, I think the, the role of quantum physics here is um, both as a, a contrast to um, the case of, of vital individuation and then also as, um, uh, as a, a point of, um, uh, I don't know, a point of origin, I guess you could say, of, uh, of this discrete uh, quality of, um, of action in the case of vital individuation. Uh, so yeah, I think that's what the connection here is, or, or why he introduces um, quantum physics again at this point. And I think also there's um, so he he first introduces this um, um, the, so he introduces this contrast uh, bet- like the the example of the electron um, where the secondary electrons produced by the first electron don't give us any information about the initial electron that that strikes the metal plate. Um, so in that case, we have um, a lack of um, of any sort of uh, uh, information transmission, or um, a lack of uh, uh, an infor- uh, a relationship of information between the initial electron and the secondary electrons. Whereas in the case of uh, vital uh, individuation, uh, even when you have, for example, the the uh, insect that has a larval stage and then un- undergoes differentiation, uh, de-differentiation, sorry, and then uh, emerges as an adult form later on. Um, even in that case, you have uh, this relationship, this analogical or transductive relationship between the, the one stage and the subsequent stages um, so that the we can understand the whole process as a self production or self reproduction of the organism um, so that's that's sort of the first step uh, of how we get back into this uh, quantum physics is, is that contrast between the two cases uh, and then in the next um, paragraph here he, he points to um, instead of the contrast the um, the actual connection between uh, um Quantum physics and and um, and vital individuation, and in particular in relation with this notion of polarization. Um, so this idea that um, within the continuous there is some sort of differentiation that uh, uh, sets out um, opposed directions of growth, for example, or um, sets out a. Um, a distinction between the head and the tail of in within an egg uh, or or some other um, beginning of differentiation within the continuous and and so he sees this beginning of differentiation within the continuous as being um, as being characteristic of uh, the uh, genesis of an individual. So once once you have that appearance of polarization. Um, that means that the potential energy within this uh, continuous or, or homogeneous um, field can then be uh, can then be structured by um, this uh, at least just a distinction of direction between front and back or up and down or, or whatever it is. Um, that's that's sort of like the the minimal um, distinction that's required in order to begin the, the genesis of an individual. Um, and then he's suggesting that this um, um, this uh, distinction sort of constitutes the distinction between the living and the physical uh, levels of individuation. So in the case of the physical individual, um, there's no distinction between the, uh, the support of the potential energy. Um, um, and the uh, the operation of, of the individuation itself, so it's uh, there, there's no distinction between the two. Uh, whereas in the case of um, the, the vital individuation, um, we have uh, a distinction between um, the the level of the uh, living individual. The sorry, the distinction between the level of the um, information structure. Uh, um, and then the level of the potential energy that um, underlies that information structure. Uh, so we have the living being um, contains an energy source within itself, and uh, it modulates the, uh, the flow of energy, we can say, I guess, from the environment uh, into that energy source, and uh, um, in a way that the physical individual doesn't.
2: So uh, kind of like a, let me let me cla- clarify like my question like, um, firstly like i would like to uh, ask again like um, the key point of this section is that like Dong says that like we don't know exactly like why, um, all the different like a singular process of genesis. Uh, take place right, and then if if it's so, and then then. In order to explain why the existing um, idea, then when Simon Don raised, um, doesn't suffice like uh, the whole kind of process. I mean, can't can't explain the whole process. said so that's why he brought up quantum physics, which was kind of like a popular like at the moment, a little bit like uh, I mean, already budding. I mean, initiating like period. As far as I understand, but anyway, it's like a. Uh, quantum physics can can explain like a microscopic word um unlike like the existing like you know the classical physics so we can more uh, we can we can be more into the microscopic world what could happen in terms of probability i mean um so at the end of the day, like uh, the singularity of the each all different kind of a process cuz here i uh, I think like Simon think like it's impossible for us like to to find like a crystal. I mean what 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 kind of milieu, like a particular make a different kind of a process of individuation, something like that. Um am I totally like misinterpreting the the whole whole section?
0: Uh no, I don't think you're you're totally misinterpreting it. Um I think that <clears throat> yeah, the question about the singularity is a is a good one because um I think it's connected to um, something that we've talked about a few times, uh, which is um, in the case of the the crystal example that he uh, comes back to all the time, um, the question is, what is the initial germ of crystallization or what is the the initial singularity around which the crystal forms? And um, he he sort of hesitates around this question I think he, he doesn't um, like in, in a text that we read before we started this book, um, which is included as a, a, an appendix in the, the, uh, the full book. Um, so the, the texts uh, form information potentials. Um, in that text, um, there's a discussion portion and someone asks him about these initial germs. And then he, he says something like, um, we would hesitate to ascribe a role of chance here or something like that. I, I forget the exact wording, but he, um, he sort of brings up the possibility that there's some sort of role of chance uh, in the, the formation of the singularity around which a crystal grows. Um, but then he sort of hesitates to actually um, uh, assert that there is this chance component or, or something like that. Uh, in, in the case of crystallization and I think um, I think that's um, a, a point of difficulty for him in general is where that first singularity arises from and uh, um, uh, so one sort of line of approach would be to uh, look at quantum physics uh, or the, the microscopic uh, subatomic realm as uh, sort of providing that, that source of chance um, around which the the crystal can grow um, or around which individuation can happen, um, but I think um, I mean not to not to sort of get into too much in the last couple of minutes here about quantum physics, but um, the the interpretation of quantum physics that Simon Don ascribes to um, is a, a, an interpretation in which um, there is no role for chance in the way that there is in the orthodox interpretation of quantum physics. Um, so that, uh, yeah, it's the, the double solution again. Um, uh, so that uh, in, in this interpretation, so the, 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 the sort of family of interpretations that the double solution theory belongs to is, is sometimes called the causal interpretation, um, uh, because it's, it um, it has a role for causality uh, as opposed to chance. There, there's no um, there's no notion of an autonomous chance or a self um, self subsistent chance or something like that, uh, like there is in the orthodox interpretation. So I think Simon Don would uh, would not want to see quantum physics as like the source of singularities um, through chance in in that way. Um, but he does suggest that there's something like um, uh, an amplification of quantum processes, uh, which is characteristic of, uh, of vital individuation, so that um, the, the complex organic molecules um, that make up a, a living being would uh, sort of amplify the quantum effects uh, and, and that would be the ultimate source of the discreteness of action uh, that, that is characteristic of uh, vital individuation. Um, so, yeah, I think the sort of short answer is that um, I think this is a, a, a sort of problem point for Simon Don's philosophy. And I don't, I don't think he has a, a good answer to that question.
2: Okay, thank you. Let me think and then twice and then, um, yeah. And then maybe like the next week we can figure out more
0: yeah sure yeah uh and you can post it in the chat and if i uh um see it over the week i'll, I'll try to answer as well
2: um, okay thank you
0: yeah so let's uh we're about at time here um so let's end here for today and then we'll pick up from the beginning of uh section four of the of the chapter next time
2: thank, yeah, you, so thank much. you everyone
0: and
1: see you all next week